0: Well, I am so excited to be with you guys this particular morning because it is December 1st, and that means we have entered into the Christmas season, and that is exciting. I am super excited because we get to begin today with the preparation and anticipation of our hearts to prepare for the celebration that we celebrate December 25th that our God came to rescue us and that he came to planet earth and he came in flesh and blood so that he would know us and walk with us and understand us and and allow us to understand him in incredible ways and he did that because that was part of his rescue plan and I am excited about that. We are traveling through the idea of Advent uh, this season. Advent simply is the preparation and anticipation of the celebration of the coming Messiah. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. And the way that we travel through Advent is that we take four words that really capture the reality of the redemptive process of Jesus, and we kind of dig into them. We spend time in them. We swim around in them. We allow them to become part of us, and we become part of them, and we see how these words are really representative of the realities of God, and how these words shape and change our lives as well, so that we know where we're traveling into as we prepare to celebrate. The four words we're going to travel through are hope, and peace, and joy, and love. They're big words, and there's a a lot to cover in these words and today we start with I think the most appropriate word if you're going to start a journey like that and that is the word hope. We begin with hope because hope is where we start as we enter into peace and joy and love and I got to tell you if you're going to start unpacking words I think a very good place to start is to start with defining the word right. I mean if we don't know what the word means or we have multiple ideas of what the word means we can't really jump in and if you're going to define a word I was told growing up the best place to go is the dictionary, and now the dictionary is online, so it's awesome, so I went to dictionary.com, I typed in the word hope, and I checked out what it said. My favorite definition in the dictionary itself for the word hope, ready? Something that is hoped for. I mean, for real? That's their idea of making this more clear to you? What is hope? Something hoped for. Now, I get that part, but I still don't understand anything about hope. Uh, Thankfully, that was not the only definition in the dictionary. They usually lay out a couple of different versions of the definition, all saying similar things, but here are some of the things that came out of the dictionary. Listen to this one. Grounds for this feeling that a particular event will turn out for the best grounds for this feeling that something's going to turn out for the best. Now, that's a fascinating definition because what the dictionary is beginning to describe is that hope is not the feeling itself. See, we thought it was the feeling, I'm feeling hopeful, but hope is actually the grounds for that feeling, you understand? So hope is already being defined as something more concrete than we might have thought it was. Hope is the grounds for a feeling that things are going to turn out okay. If you just feel they're going to and you have no grounds, that's not actually real hope. That's just human insanity. And so hope is actually having grounds. Listen to this. Hope is a person or thing in which expectations are centered. That's out of the dictionary. Hope is a person or thing that expectations are centered on. So to have hope is to see something or some person and place all your eggs in their basket. To place all your expectations on them. I love this definition right here. To look forward to with desire and reasonable confidence. Hope is to look forward to something you do not yet know with desire and reasonable confidence. See, what's interesting about the dictionary definition is that it is defining and describing a reality in hope that seems much more concrete than we initially suspected, at least that I did. It's saying it's grounds for something. It's reasonable confidence. It's looking forward but having reason to believe. It's placing all your eggs into a person or a thing. That's what hope is. Now, the Scriptures actually takes this definition of hope that we ended with, uh, looking forward with desire and reasonable confidence, and it takes it to a whole nother level. It actually says that the hope we are looking into doesn't just have reasonable confidence. In other words, we have some reason to believe it. It actually says that it is an absolute confidence. It's defined in the book of Hebrews chapter uh, 11. Just listen for a second. Just pop in there. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 talks about faith and it's actually defining faith for us. And it says this now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of Of the guarantee of things hoped for. That's kind of crazy. The NIV translates it this way. Faith is being certain of the things you hope for. How can you be certain of things that are going to come, right? How is that possible? The author of Hebrews uh, went so far as to say that the hope we hold in the story we're celebrating is so absolute that we can be certain of it. Is that actually even true? I think when I hear something like that, the first question is, is, is that true? Can I actually have that kind of certainty as I walk into the idea or the word of hope as it relates to the Christmas story? So I think a good place to start would be to jump into the Christmas story and see, okay, what is this Christmas story? And is there, in fact, in that Christmas story, the kind of hope that is certain enough that I can say it's certain? You with me so far? Okay, let's turn to the Christmas story then. You're welcome just to listen or to turn with me. We're gonna start in the book of Luke because apparently the Christmas story begins in the very beginning of the Gospels, the beginning of Jesus' life because we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas. So we are going to jump into the book of Luke, chapter one, verse 28, and here's what it says. The story begins this way. In the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So that's where the story begins. I'm not going to read the rest of this particular section. I'm just going to tell you this. You kind of know how the story goes if you've ever heard this before. So there's this young girl, probably mid to late teens, cultural context, uh, if if she is betrothed uh, or engaged to a man. She's probably in her uh, mid to late teens, maybe early 20s, but very young, probably teenager. Joseph's probably late teens uh, into 20s somewhere, and so you've got two very young people, a young teenage girl, and here's what happens with her, okay? She finds herself to be pregnant, but right before she's pregnant, uh, she says that she was visited by the angel Gabriel, and he said that this pregnancy is going to be supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, that she does not have to be concerned uh, because it is an unusual event, no doubt. But she didn't do anything wrong. She's just supernaturally uh, having a child conceived in her by God. Okay. So Mary tells Joseph this, and Joseph kind of has a little bit of a cow, wouldn't you? I mean, uh, she's pregnant. she's a teenager. She says an angel showed up and told her. And I, I would be wondering, I'm just saying I'd be going that seems like an odd story, not the usual deal. Joseph kind of kind of thinks it through and wonders, should he hang with her? Maybe she just let her go. It's kind of an embarrassing story. This was someone he really uh, cared about. And so he's sleeping one night, and Joseph says to us that he had a dream where some angel showed up and said to him. It's going to be cool. Don't worry about it. She's telling the truth. You go ahead and stick with her. So Joseph tells us, not only did Mary see an angel that confirms that this is a supernatural event, but he saw an angel that confirms that it's a supernatural event. Mary then travels uh, out of Nazareth, up to, to visit uh, her extended family, Elizabeth, because Elizabeth, who is a much older woman, has also found herself pregnant. Kind of a weird deal, too. I mean, this family's going through a lot of controversy as a family, right? I mean, uh, the young one is now pregnant. The old one is now pregnant. They're like, neither of these should be pregnant. And so, Mary heads off to go and visit with Elizabeth, and she hangs out with Elizabeth, and Zachariah's over there. And so, Zachariah prophesies He says the Holy Spirit comes over him and he prophesies over the child that is in Mary's womb, confirming for us that what Mary is saying about a supernatural, uh, um, uh, um, uh, I was going to say convention, but that's not the right word. Um, It's not a supernatural convention, it's actually a supernatural, um, um, come on. Conception, thank you. It's a momentary miss, okay? Hang with me here. A supernatural um, thing. And so, um, so then what happens is, uh, Zechariah prophesies over this baby and, and listen to what he says in the prophecy. In Luke chapter 1 verse... Um, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah prophesies that the child in Mary's womb is a supernatural story God is affecting, and that the child in Elizabeth's womb is part of that supernatural story, because the child in Elizabeth's womb is going to turn out to be John, who we get to know, and John was the foreshadow of the Messiah, the voice in the desert who's going to call Jesus into the story and introduce us to Jesus. That was also part of the story. So we have the, the virgin teenager who's pregnant who saw an angel, her husband-to-be who said he saw angels and therefore confirms that. She goes up to uh, her, uh, her extended family and confirms there because the, the extended family prays over and prophesies. And then after that, the baby is born. And when Jesus is born, we have a sequence of events take place. Before he's born, they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And certainly it's because there was a census in the land. We know that. But also it is relatively convenient to be able to pull out of small town Nazareth where there's a lot of talk and go and birth the baby in some place that's obscure and off the beaten path called Bethlehem. So we have this couple in Bethlehem birthing the child and then there's these shepherds, okay? So these shepherds are in the field right outside of Bethlehem and this incident occurs with the shepherds that they say these angels show up and speak to them. Look, it says it in the uh, book of Luke. Listen to this, it says there were some shepherds in a field, chapter 2, verse 8, and it says in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news with great joy for all people for unto us a child is born. And then a bunch of other angels show up and sing to the shepherds about the glory of God and then the shepherds say when the angels leave we should go to Bethlehem and see the child. So the next step in our story is a bunch of shepherds in a field telling us they saw angels and came down to see the baby Jesus. And I just tell you a little something about shepherds? Shepherds are not complicated people. They're not the people you run to when you need some wise advice about some life event that took place. They're not the people you go to when you want to be taught and discipled about the great books that have been written over the centuries. Here's what shepherds do. They stand all night long in a field and they do this. Bah. Hmm. hmm. Bah. Hmm. Hmm. Do you sense any danger? No, not really. Good. Good. Keep a watchful eye. You never know. Could be wolves. Hm Hmm. That's good. That's what shepherds do, folks. That's it. That's it. They, they hang out in the field, they they chill, they play musical instruments, and they watch the sheep. We know this because David played a harp. So um here's the deal, right? shepherds not complicated people and if you're going to take someone's word for something that is happening in human history I'm not going to recommend the shepherds as the first place to go to okay but they're the ones that come to the stable first and say they heard angels and saw Jesus and I'm saying did you fall asleep I'm not sure okay And then while this is going on, we find out in the book of Matthew chapter 2 that some foreigners from a faraway land that we don't know and we don't trust and we don't know who they are and where they they come from, they come down to Jerusalem and apparently they saw a star in the sky that appeared one day and started moving across the sky and went and rested over Bethlehem. And so they're following the star and they want to come and see this new king that's been born. And so they tell the story this way in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So now we got a bunch of wise foreigners that are coming and they saw a star in the sky and they came to see Jesus. And then as a final piece of this story, before we sort of progress into the larger story beyond the Christmas story, at least that's what it seems, we bump into a guy named Simeon. Simeon was a priest in the temple at the time, verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, and it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he sees the Lord's Christ. So this Simeon guy who's in the temple, he's been told by the Holy Spirit that he's going to see the Christ child before he dies. He's an old man now toward the very end of his life. And Jesus is brought to him and this is what he says. Uh, Right after Jesus is brought to him, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. There's our Christmas story. A teenage virgin who found herself pregnant said she saw an angel her embarrassed soon-to-be husband who said he saw an angel, the extended family who had their own controversy with a pregnant child pr- prophesying over the supernatural reality of this birth, some shepherds in a field that said they saw angels, some wise men that said they saw a star, and some old desperate guy in a temple who knew he'd see Jesus, or, or the Messiah at least, who finally sees a baby and goes, this is the one. Now you can hear a little bit of skepticism in my voice. You know why? Because if that story is a standalone story, if that's all we've got, can I just say the hope under my feet feels like quicksand, doesn't it to you? Feels like New York City to me. Bunch of guys with a billboard going, oh, the world's coming to an end. Now, if this story's true, if this story's true, it's phenomenal. It's unbelievable, it's miraculous and it will be a confirmation of things that are unbelievable but I'm just saying based on the current evidence we have right there, just standalone story, do you feel that this is an appropriate statement? The hope we have is like concrete under our feet. It is certain and solid. You placed your hope in a virgin girl and her husband and her extended family and some shepherds and some Uh, guys from the east and your hope is certainly not secure so where on earth do we go from here well there's a clue in the story See, both Zechariah, when when he was prophesying, as well as Simeon, said something that clued us in to where we go next. Because they said, Listen, what's happening here is the fulfillment of, or a picture of, what we've been waiting for since long ago. Zechariah says, The promises you made to our forefathers and to Abraham, and all that stuff. And Simeon says, I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's he been waiting for? God promised it's coming. What is this that's going on? So we say, To ourselves, before we just start faltering in the hope that's under our feet, let's travel and expand the Christmas story a bit because I don't think the Christmas story begins in the beginning of the Gospels. I think the Christmas story begins in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And here's what we find out in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis We were created as a human race to uh, know God fully and intimately in perfect freedom and to make that freedom known to the world, imaging God and displaying that freedom and wonder and the character of God to one another and to. To all of creation that was our created purpose where we would have felt and experienced the fullness of perfection freedom and love We decided to pursue our own divinity, chase after our own story and image our own images when the enemy convinced us that was a better story than God's story for us. And we were lost to life and lost to freedom and lost to uh, to light and we found ourselves chasing after the wind like rats in a cage, clawing after false saviors and false idols trying to fulfill our souls. And that was a terrible and grievous and sorrowful life had moments of beauty, but they were deceptive in of themselves because underneath there was nothing of solid ground. And we find out in the beginning of the Genesis story that God started whispering a promise to his people to us the human race even to Adam and Eve he said oh don't worry I know you're lost now but I will not abandon the human story I will not leave you to yourselves I will not watch you die I will come I will rescue I will redeem I will restore I'm after you and he demonstrates this in the human story through the flood incident and the Tower of Babel incident and then he takes a nation out for himself and he demonstrates through this nation what it looks like when you live under the protection and provision and and and, and, and watchful Eye of God, and you, you, we see what happens with the rest of the nations when you don't, and the story unfolds. And then through the Jewish nation, God begins to take the original promises that were general I'm coming to get you and starts being specific about them. And there are over 300 direct and specific prophecies about the coming Messiah. And we begin to discover as we study the Old Testament that those 300 plus prophecies are not about an event, they are about a person, they are about one who will come one who will rescue, one who will be the savior. And so it is no, uh, no joke then that Simeon says, we have been waiting for generations for the consolation of Israel. We've been waiting for generations for the promises to be fulfilled because they understood and knew the promises. They knew the prophecies and how specific they were. They were so specific, they included places like Bethlehem. They included places like a strange event about a virgin birth. They include all sorts of wonderful realities about the birthing, time and the realities during that birthing time they include a star that's going to rise and come across and so suddenly if you know the old testament and if you've heard the prophecies and if you understand the story suddenly when a virgin girl says an angel showed up and i'm supernaturally pregnant by the holy spirit and the angel shows up to a a number of people in sequence and then the star rises up and crosses over you've got to start going oh my gosh Oh my gosh, I mean could this be that time that we've all heard about, wondered about, kind of didn't fully believe but thought it could be pretty cool and now it's happening before our very eyes and this could be that event. I'm not saying it is yet, I'm just saying it starts getting you thinking. Suddenly that shaky ground under your feet doesn't feel quite as shaky and you go maybe, just maybe this is not totally uh, shaky under my feet because there's a much bigger story here and that story of the incredible prophecies about the birth of this person who is going to be the rescuer, the Messiah, the Savior, that story aligns with the story we just read, but it expands beyond the story we just read too. It's not just about the birth of Jesus, not just about the events that will surround the birth, it actually follows the life of Jesus, and it follows all the way into the end of Jesus' life. It prophesies about what we should expect when we watch this Messiah function on planet Earth, and what we should expect when we watch him end his time on planet earth. Take a look at the book of Isaiah. Just listen if you'd like or you can turn there. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah the prophet is speaking about this coming Messiah and this is what he says. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know those grievous and sorrowful things we live in the rat race as we chase after the wind? He will carry those things for us. He will take them on. You know the grievous and sorrowful things we experience when we hurt each other, when we, when we, when, when we are uh, mean to each other and horrible to each other and, and take from each other and steal from each other in our own pain? All that it says. This Savior that's been prophesied about, that's being prophesied about, He will take on those things. Listen to this. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We considered him cursed of God. We're like, here he is taking on our griefs and our sorrows. And we're going to go, man, that that God is not with that guy. Because look at his life, man. That's sad. Take a look at this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This savior that is being prophesied here, his crushing reality, his Uh, 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 piercings will be for our mess and for our mistakes and for our sin and for our devastation and he will actually face the chastisement of God which is really just the wrath of God I'll tell you something as human beings it is not the enemy of God we should fear it is the wrath of God we should fear the enemy of God is child's play the wrath of God is what is against sin and if we are sin then the wrath of God is against us and we stand in the path of the wrath of God And that's not good for anyone. And what the Bible says is that this Savior will stand in the gap in the wrath of God, taking on the wrath of God so that we will not have to take on the wrath of God and we will experience the peace of God instead of the wrath of God. That's what this prophecy is about. Listen to this. And it says this, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. See, this is a prophecy about the Messiah who is coming to rescue us, that his life will not only include a set of events in his birth that are miraculous and unusual, but it will also include a set of events in his death that are very unusual, so much so that we'll consider him stricken of God, and yet it will not be him being stricken of God, it will be him living for us in God's wrath so that we won't have to. And it will seem like he is being led to the slaughter like a lamb, and we go, wow, that That's amazing. So let's jump forward now out of the past, past the present Christmas story we started in, into the future of that Christmas story and see where the life of Jesus goes. So this baby's born from Mary. Then we're still uncertain. Is her story true or not? I don't know. We've got some prophecies that certainly point toward it. But does that confirm it? Not so sure. Then we follow the life of Jesus. And Jesus, we bump into him briefly at 12 in the temple, blink of an eye. And then after that, we find him coming out of the woodwork, literally, he's a carpenter so he comes out of the woodwork and um, he heads into the baptism The baptism is an amazing event with a bunch of witnesses. Jesus enters into the water. A dove descends. I think the dove was glowing because they wrote about it, and that's pretty cool. And I've seen doves. They're not that special, but a a dove like this, that's pretty awesome. Dove descends and hovers over Jesus, and a voice from heaven comes down and says, This is my son, the promised one in whom I am well pleased. It's God's way of saying, darkness, step back because we're coming for you and we stand and we watch that and out of that baptism Jesus walks out of the baptism enters into temptation we watch him overcome the realities of the enemy's onslaught directly and then he walks into his hometown Nazareth he walks into the synagogue they're reading from Isaiah the prophecy about the coming Messiah he reads it and says in your midst this is fulfilled they all think he's blaspheming because he's calling himself the Messiah and they try to stone him he leaves there goes down to Capernaum and begins a string of the most miraculous things you will ever see in your life. Everywhere he goes, everything he says, everything he touches, it is like he takes dead things and makes them brand new. He brings blind people to sight. He brings sick people to health. He brings dead people to life. And we watch him and we follow him we're like, this is insane, man. He gathers for himself some guys and a group of followers and we sit with him on the side of a mountain with the Jewish people as he teaches about the kingdom of God and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And when that sermon is done, as the scriptures say, the people look at him and they are amazed and they say, who is this man that he teaches with the authority of God? And I want to whisper, he's God, he's God, you just don't know that yet, but you will. And we watch him teach with such authority and such wonder that we are blown away. And we think this is the story because he's leading up to become a great leader who will overthrow the empires of the world so the Jewish people will rise up. But no, he travels on and begins to teach his people, the guys following him and the, and the women that are traveling with him. And he says, listen, this is not gonna end well, seemingly. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna go through a horrible death. And you guys are gonna be with me during that. So I'm teaching you because you're gonna carry something after. But don't worry, when I die, do not lose hope. Because I will resurrect from the dead three days after I die. Pretty cool story if it's true. But we're like, man, could it be? So the disciples kind of ignore it because they're like, what's Jesus talking about? Until we stand in the garden of Gethsemane with him. And we begin to watch him there. And we see this cup that is coming his way. And we go, whoa, this is is big. This is big. Sweating blood and saying, Father, I know there's no other way. But if there was, this cup would pass. So I'm ready to take it on because I know there's no other way. We follow Jesus on the path to his trial and then from his beatings and his trial up the mountain carrying a cross for us and we watch him die on a cross and we listen into the scriptures as he is separated from his father and the triune community that is God himself is torn apart for us. God ripped in two for you and me and we are in awe and then we wait. We wait because if the next event takes place, everything changes. And three days later, a bunch of women head down to a tomb and guess what they find? An empty tomb. History doesn't argue about that. The tomb was empty. Historically and biblically, the tomb was empty. Nobody argues in the historical documents, no, 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 no. Jesus was right there, man. I'm telling you, these people are crazy. The tomb was empty. The question that lingers in history is how it get empty. Because nobody believed Jesus actually just walked out of the tomb alive, so there must be some other explanation. And as far as we can study in historical reality, there are only three possibilities that exist beyond the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead. Number one, the enemies of God stole the body from the tomb. It's possible, right? They came in, they didn't want the disciples to take the body, so they came before the disciples because they were afraid the disciples would take the body and they stole the body before the disciples did. I would buy that story because it's strategic. It's what I would do. If I was the, uh, the people trying to stop a movement that had a rumor that the leader of the movement wasn't only gonna die but raised from the dead, and I knew that if this became a truth, if people believed that this guy rose from the dead, we are in the weeds, man, because this movement's gonna move fast. To stop that movement, what's the fastest, easiest way to do that? Produce a dead Jesus. It's not hard. It's not hard. I'm, I'm, I'm not the smart guy, but that seems pretty obvious to me. Take it, bring it, day four. What did Jesus say? Three days? Excellent. Still dead. Day four. Oh, he meant three weeks. We'll hold on to the body. We'll come back in three weeks. Three months, we can do it again. See, as long as you hold the body, you hold the power. They never produced a body. Do you know why? Because they never had a body. So we go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. They didn't steal the body because then they would have produced it and then the whole thing would have died, but they didn't. So I'll tell you who stole the body. It was the disciples, the followers, the kind of the key crowd. They stole the body. Why would they steal the body? It makes perfect sense to me. If I were them, I'd steal the body. I'm just saying. I'm I'm not saying I'm totally evil, but I think strategically and I would steal the body. Why would I steal the body? Because Jesus isn't actually going to come back from the dead, I don't think. And if I can take the body and steal it, then I can tell a story about the resurrected Savior and then I will get what? Notoriety and fame and fortune and I'll become the leaders of a great powerful movement and we might even throw the Roman government still. If we can convince the people that Jesus is our invisible Risen Savior, then we're in good shape. And I would buy that story except for two small problems. The pansy disciples that were scared to death about dying in the trial with Jesus came three days later without any incentive. They faced against a Roman garrison. Now remember, these guys are trained to do this. If you die fighting, good for you. If you turn and run like a coward, we'll kill you. So keep fighting. Those are your two options die there or die here or win. That's the Roman soldiers. And so these guys, they don't take lightly to someone coming to steal a body so that they'll die. They would have had to overcome those Roman soldiers, break the seal, roll the big stone away, steal the body, leave the stone there, hide the body, and then go back to sitting around in the upper room and going, we didn't do anything. Now let's just say that that was possible. Let's just say that was possible. At the point that Peter, a few years later, is sitting in the middle of Rome, and he's asked this question. Deny the resurrection of Jesus... Well, we're going to kill you. And Peter answers this way. "Um, Can I explain? I know you're going to be mad, but we thought it was a good idea to steal the body. (laughs) And I know it's going to cause some trouble, but is there any way I could like be forgiven? That wasn't Peter's answer. See, Peter's answer went this way. You are welcome to crucify me. Just please do it upside down because I am not worthy of being crucified the same way my savior was. Who does that? Well, the other 10 guys that were following Jesus Nine of them were martyred horribly at the end of their lives for not denying the resurrection of Jesus. Nine of them. Sword in two, heads chopped off, uh, ripped apart by wild animals. It wasn't pretty. Except for John. John was boiled in oil and he was excommunicated to the island of Patmos where he lived out his days and died. Wasn't pretty. None of them ever denied the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know why? Not because they saw an empty tomb, although that was pretty cool, but because they saw a resurrected Savior. And those guys became the foundation to the gospel movement of extraordinary and epic proportions. And it didn't stop there. You see, at this point, I'm standing going, Whoa, whoa. Wait, there's one other theory. (laughs) Jesus didn't die on the cross, he didn't die. Yeah, the blood and all that kind of stuff, it was bad, but he didn't die. And when they put the spear through his heart, they missed the heart. And then he bled out, but not completely. And he was weak, but he didn't die. But what happened is three days later, he revived inside the tomb, laying in a cold, dead spot, recovered pretty much fully in three days, rolled the stone away all by himself, overcame the Romans by themselves, chased them to go tattletale on a bunch of angels, and then saw Mary about three hours later in the garden. She didn't recognize him because he looked so good. I'm like, okay, let's just leave that one alone. That's going to be way too much fun. Okay, so here's the deal. When you start looking into the resurrection, you start realizing, you know what? The story that was prophesied in the past didn't only come true in a set of events in the birthing episode, but it came true in a set of events in the dying episode, the resurrecting episode, and then... Jesus passes that message on to these guys and they carry the gospel into, are you ready for this? The two most hostile environments to any new philosophy. Rome was designed as an empire to take philosophies that were in opposition to them and turn them upside down, inside out and squash them. That's what Rome was designed to do. It was brilliant at it. And the Jewish leadership who was guarding the Jewish institution had become very, very good at guarding it against anything that was blasphemous with any means necessary, including threats and death. You could not have chosen a more hostile environment for a brand new idea like the gospel to be born in and try to move forward. And you know what we found? We found that that gospel that was based on the resurrection of Jesus moved so beautifully and swiftly into the Roman Empire and into the Jewish leadership that it brought both of those institutions to their knees in less than 300 years crossing generational boundaries, cultural boundaries, language boundaries, geographical boundaries, and it just moved on. Thousands gave up their lives in the early days of the gospel because they had seen the resurrected Savior and lived it. And then there's this guy, Saul, who was the major persecutor of the entire church. And you know what happens? He's chasing after killing Christians, and he claims to have seen the resurrected Jesus on a road to Damascus, and he doesn't become a normal human being. That would be cool enough. He becomes the most fanatical, unbelievable carrier of the gospel that we have ever seen to the Gentile world. He writes most of the New Testament and shapes everything. He had the life he wanted. He was already fully notarized and fully awesome and fully set for a great career. This one kind of blew him over. He, got, he ends up being martyred as well. There goes Paul and all these guys because they saw the resurrected Savior. See, our hope that is certain isn't in a virgin teenager telling us about a crazy story with Gabriel or in her extended family or in the old desperate guy who wanted to see the Savior or in a bunch of foreigners from a foreign land or in a bunch of shepherds. No, their story becomes amazing because our hope is in the resurrected Jesus. And if he resurrected, then it turns out Mary was telling the truth. She was telling the truth. Who knew? She's not from New York City. I'm not picking on New York City. I'm just saying that's where I've experienced most of the weirdness, okay? So here's the deal. It turns out these stories are absolutely true, not because we trust in the people that told them, but because we saw the empty tomb and we heard of the resurrected Savior and we watched the men and women die because they believed, because they saw. And so our hope that the author of Hebrews speaks of is not in the Christmas story as we know it. It's in the Christmas story as it is expanded through the whole of Scripture. That Jesus was, in fact, exactly who he said he was. And therefore, Mary told the truth. And therefore, the shepherds are telling the truth. And therefore, the wise men are telling the truth. And therefore, the Christmas story is beautiful, powerful, and miraculous. And if that's where we stop, that would be awesome enough. Our hope is in Jesus who resurrected and we follow him now. That's an awesome story, but that's not where our hope ends. It's just where it begins. See, our hope is in what Jesus said he was doing in that set of episodes. Jesus said he was coming to redeem our story. That is to buy us back from the grief and the sorrow and the death that we had made our story to buy us back from the rat race and the chasing after the wind, and to give us life back and freedom back and light back as an identity. Jesus said, I have come to rescue your souls and to restore your purpose and your life not only for eternity but also on planet earth so that now you live here on mission with purpose, realizing that those circumstances and relationships and resources that used to haunt your souls and hurt you and take from you and tempt you and entice you and captivate you and cause you stuck and bound, that those things are no longer empowerments over you, but you transcend them and they become tools not only to enjoy but to allow Jesus to be made known Your God-given created purpose, and I'm going to restore you in eternity so that you're not only a missional follower of Christ on planet earth, but a child belonging to God for eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Our souls are rescued, our purpose restored, our future restored, and we have life. And that's the Christmas story. That's the hope we place ourselves in. And that hope only exists because we have hope in a person. We put all our eggs in his basket. All our expectations are centered on him. If he came back from the dead, then he is who he said he was. Then Mary told the truth. Then my redemption is secure. Then I'm saved. And that's hopeful, man. And now I know where I'm going and I know what's happening. And I'm ready for life. And so all week long as I've been digging into hope and living my life in the insanity that it is and going, ah, 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 and as that's all happening, I'm going, God, where is hope? The song kept coming into my mind over and over and over and over again. Jesus said these words, I have come to make all things new. Everything, man. Every circumstance, every pain, every hurt, every horrible thing that's been done to you and every horrible thing you've done to somebody else, he has promised that he's coming to make it all count for something, all matter for something beautiful. He will make all things new. And there's a song that was written, he makes beautiful things out of the dust, man. Out of my dust, the wake of my mess, he makes beautiful things. I don't know how. That's the miracle. I don't know how, but he does and he will. And that's my hope. And so I want you to linger with me in the words of that song this weekend as we enter into Advent and begin to build in anticipation for the coming celebration of our Savior come to save us. I want you to linger with those words to So enjoy this video and let these words wash over you as you remember he has come indeed to make beautiful things out of us, man. Take a look. you. Yeah. Our hope, absolutely, it's absolutely worth celebrating. Our hope is this, that because we have a risen Savior, that the promises He's made about our lives now and in the future are true. And this is what He says, Romans chapter 8, I will work all things out for the good of those who love Me and are called according to My purpose, no matter how terribly dusty they seem at first. I will make them beautiful for you. And he says this later on through Paul again in Philippians. For I'm confident of this, Paul says, that the work he began in you, he will bring to completion before the day of Jesus Christ. See, the work that's happening in you and I is a work of God that he is finishing and that is our hope. That in our mess and in our dust, he comes and makes everything beautiful in the end. Not always felt right away, but will always be seen in the end. And so we wait and we wait with deep desire and absolute confidence in the finished story of God that He has already begun so beautifully. But God doesn't leave it there, does He? He also says this to us in the Scripture. Therefore, since you are so full of hope, so filled with this hope that is yours now, always be ready in season and out of season to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And so our privilege expands beyond just what we've received as a soul rescue, but our privilege expands into what we receive as a, as a rescued and redeemed purpose That we get to go out now and represent the hope that is in us and be hope to the world, making the dust of our culture and the dust of our world beautiful again, because He made us beautiful and He can use us to make the world beautiful. And what an opportunity we face this season to be the hope for the world. Have you seen the dust around our culture this season? Started Black Friday, Walmart. Seven dead, I don't know, and a whole bunch injured out of people rushing to buy toys. But it's not unusual. Happened last year and the year before too. And it's just the beginning of the iceberg of commercialism that's going to run through the next four weeks. Parking lots are going to be a nightmare. Malls are going to be crazy. Everyone's desperate to get what they need. Grocery stores are overrun. Retailers are exhausted and mean and people are exhausteder and meaner. No wonder the retailers are exhausted and mean. And that's the world we're about to enter into. And you can enter into it with everybody else or you and I can choose to be the hope this season that is so lost in the dust of our culture and make things beautiful. It's not that difficult. When you're shopping and you bump into a retailer and they're standing in front of you and they look half dead because you're... Customer number 487 that's about to be rude to them and treat them like they're nothing and you pull a little nicely wrapped piece of candy out and say, thank you so much for serving me this Christmas. You're awesome. I hope you get some rest. Anything I can do for you, let me know. Would you like me to have the next customer go first? I'm game for anything. You will blow somebody's mind and you will make dust beautiful. Here's one for you, (laughs) my favorite. I came up with this yesterday. (laughs) Parking lot. Drive around the parking lot, 30, 40 minutes extra, okay? And go find spaces. And when you find a space, pull up to it, put your blinker on and just wait. Click, 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 wait. Car coming out. Okay. No, 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 you take it. No, no, I was about to, but you take it. You go. Now that's awesome. Uh, uh, You're welcome. Have a good. Okay. (laughs) Next part. Click, 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 click. Wait for it, wait for it. Car. Oh, no, no, you take it. You do it. I'm here for you. It's awesome. As a family, make up a big little poster that says Jesus is hope and put it in your back window so wherever you drive around, you represent the reality of Christ properly in a parking lot. And you just spend an hour driving around. Go to the mall, to the parking lot, just to drive around and just save spaces for people. I got it. Right here. Come over here. Right here. Oh, yeah. This was a good one. I would have said God gave this one to me because I'm his child, but actually gave it to you. I'm here to serve. And we start living differently this season. Don't get into the fray. Transcend it. Use it. It's dusty and dark. Use it to make beautiful things out of the dust. And this Christmas, let us represent the hope that is ours in Christ that is certain and secure under our feet. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you so much for the incredible hope that you have given us. In the past story of your promise in the Old Testament, in the beautiful story of your birth that is so extraordinary it seemed unthinkably untrue, until we discovered it to be wholly true because we watched your life unfold just as you said it would and your death and resurrection just as you promised it would and then discovered that all of that was a great work of redemption to rescue our souls and restore our purpose both here and in eternity forever, to be missional followers of you here and children of yours in eternity forever. God, you blow our minds today And we find ourselves stirred up, stirred up with hope, ready to walk into a season of Advent anticipating with such excitement the 25th of December where we can get on our knees and worship you for all that you have done and because you are enough for us and because you are hope to us and because our hope is certain and assured. And we thank you for that this season. We love you, Jesus. Amen.